Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. This is Jamie Rosenberg, Assistant Editor for the American Journal of Managed Care. Concerns over rising costs of healthcare remain at the forefront of healthcare discussions in the U.S. In February, a health affairs report estimated that the national health spending is projected to climb to 19.7% of our economy over the next eight years, which is up from 17.9% in 2016. This is largely attributable to the fact that the projected average annual rate of national health spending is expected to grow 5.5% until 2026. According to the report, expenditures will also rise to $5.7 trillion in 2026. As health professionals nationwide struggle to come up with ways to cut costs while maintaining and ideally improving the quality of care for their patients, the idea of addressing low-value services has gained traction. Several studies have demonstrated that low-value services contribute to the most unnecessary health spending in the U.S. In Washington state alone, low-value services accounted for $282 million of healthcare spending between July 2015 and June 2016. These services not only attribute to rising healthcare costs, but they can also potentially result in physical, emotional, and financial harm for patients. In response, campaigns such as Choosing Wisely seek to increase conversations between physicians and patients to help them make wise decisions about appropriate care and reduce the use of low-value services. Value-Based Insurance Design Health's Task Force on Low-Value Care, which aims to drive action to reduce low-value medical care, identified a top-five list of low-value clinical services that can be targeted. The services were chosen based upon their association with harm, their cost and prevalence, and identified methods to reduce their use. I spoke with Jason Buxbaum from Vbit Health about the low-value services the task force identified, the impact they have, and what states are doing to address them. So what are the top five low-value services that your group has identified, and how big of an impact do they have on healthcare spending? Sure. So our, our task force of, of purchasers and employer coalitions and consumer advocates and providers, um, our small group has come up with, with these five services. Um, the first is diagnostic testing and imaging prior to surgery uh, for low-risk patients uh, undergoing low-risk surgery. Um, low-risk patients um, typically don't need complete blood counts, metabolic panels, chest x-rays, stress tests, pulmonary function tests, uh, at least not in a blanket way across, across patients. Services like complete blood counts, metabolic panels, chest x-rays, stress tests uh, are commonly overused before low-risk surgery. Um, these services rarely change patient management and um, they identify clinically insignificant uh, abnormalities or these incidental lomas. Um, at least four medical societies have issued choosing wisely recommendations pertaining to um, testing before low-risk surgery. Uh, we estimated, drawing on some experience from Virginia, uh, that in the ballpark of 20 million uh, pr procedures of this sort are performed every year, uh, probably at an annual cost of about $10 billion. Our second service was vitamin D screening at a population level. Um, evidence shows that vitamin D screening uh, should generally be avoided um, absent a specific clinical indication. 
Um, and if a clinician suspects vitamin D deficiency, patients can simply be advised to use a vitamin D supplement, increase their sun exposure. Uh, two medical societies have issued choosing wisely recommendations uh, on this service. Nationwide, we estimated uh, that about 6 million unneeded screenings took place in 2014, and probably hundreds of millions of dollars in associated spend for this very common, even though relatively low dollar service. Our third service was PSA screening in men 75 and older. Um, the guidelines from the United States Preventive Services Task Force, the USPSTF, are changing with respect to prostate cancer. And uh, certainly with, with younger men, it's complicated. But in men 70 plus, and most certainly in men 75 plus, uh, evidence seems very clear that PSA screening does more harm than good. That being said, uh, in 2014, um, when, the when the recommendation from the USPSTF was even stronger to avoid in all populations, at least 1 million unneeded screenings were performed in men 75 plus, resulting in at least $44 million in spend just on those PSA tests. And that doesn't count all the potential downstream services that follow. Our fourth service was imaging in the first six weeks of low back pain absent red flags. And this is referring to those x-rays, uh, CTs, MRIs, where in the absence of, uh, of a red flag or, or a specific clinical warning sign, um, the evidence shows doesn't change management, detects these, again, clinically insignificant abnormalities, and also potentially exposes patients to unneeded radiation. At least nine medical societies issued choosing wisely recommendations on the service. This, uh, there's a HEDIS measure that, that aligns with this. And so we, we think it's important. Uh, conservatively, there were at least one and a half million avoidable imaging services performed in 2014. And very conservatively, about half a billion dollars in spend uh, resulted. Our fifth and final uh, service was um, use of branded drugs when identical generics are available. This isn't referring to therapeutic substitution. We're talking about kind of the lowest of the low-hanging fruit here. It turns out that um, in 2016, purchasers would have saved about $15 billion if 100% of prescriptions with generics available had in fact been dispensed as generics. So how are states targeting these low-value services to reduce healthcare spending in public programs? So many states have been leading the way towards uh, addressing um, overuse and uh, these low-value services. Minnesota Medicaid, for instance, established a, a single rate for uh, vaginal deliveries and cesarean sections, recognizing um, that too many cesarean sections are performed in, on low-risk deliveries where they're not needed. Um, South Carolina Medicaid has pursued a similar strategy. And, uh, and sticking, um, sticking with the safe maternity care, Cover California uh, has also been a leader in this respect. The, the state exchange in California has established an expectation that all the qualified health plans um, selling coverage through California should include only those, um, those hospitals in their system that are, are meeting a, a predetermined benchmark for um, cesarean section avoidance in low-risk deliveries. And any qualified health plan that um, is including a hospital that hasn't met those goals has to justify why the hospital ought to be included and, um, and what the plan is to get them to, uh, to a high-performing place. And they're recognizing um, that oftentimes multiple strategies are more effective than any strategy in isolation. They're also supporting um, a multi-stakeholder learning collaborative dedicated to spreading best practices across hospitals. Mm -hmm.
Once these low-value services are identified, there is a challenge in translating the conversation into something actionable for employers. So I asked Buxbaum why these low-value services are so hard to address. So we picked these services because we think purchasers can act, and there are most definitely challenges to acting, and that's why this low value, these low-value services persist. Um, in general, I'd say overuse persists because there's no one single explanation. There's no one single root cause. Um, certainly, fee-for-service payment um, contributes when providers are paid more for doing more. Uh, but even countries that, that, that pay differently and operate under strict global budgets, they still have overuse. So I, I think you have to think a lot about the culture of medicine, about, about being human and cognitive biases that aren't limited only to physicians and other providers. A lot of the, the work on behavioral economics um, has talked about how we'll tend to place more weight on sins of omission rather than sins of commission. We'll place more weight on, on failing to, to catch something we should have caught than over-treatment. The sense of more is good is pervasive in human nature. It's not just limited to clinicians. There's often an urge to do something for the patient that's right in front of you. There's a, a sense of patient expectations. I want to be patient-centered and deliver the care that my patients expect. Sometimes clinicians aren't always correct about what their patients are expecting. There's also certainly also uh, fear of malpractice and fear of liability. Reviewing the literature, I, I think it's fair to say that that defensive medicine is real and contributes to overuse, um, but I think it's easy to overstate its importance. Um, and you could certainly get the strictest malpractice reform laws on the books, and a great deal of overuse would, would still persist. So in sum, it's hard to address because there's no one cause of all of it, and therefore there's no one lever where you can act to eliminate it all. But by considering many levers, it's possible to make a meaningful difference. I also spoke with Robert Dubois, the Chief Science Officer and Executive Vice President of the National Pharmaceutical Council on why these low-value services are so hard to address and what happens if we do not properly address them. Starting off, what would you say is the challenge with addressing these low-value services? I think there, for decades, has been an awareness that there is, in fact, low-value care. The RAND Corporation, back in the 80s, identified 20, 30 percent of all major procedures they looked at, hysterectomy, back surgery, whatever, were unnecessary, where the risks outweighed the benefits. The Institute of Medicine, now the National Academy of Medicine, identified that there is $700 billion of low-value care and waste in the system. And Health Affairs recently published an article showing that, you know, we haven't made much of a dent in all of this. We absolutely need to do a better job. The problem is, I believe, twofold. One is, there's very little no-value care. If you have a headache and you want to have an MRI scan to rule out a brain tumor or an aneurysm, it's not high value, but it's also not no-value. And so the real struggle is with the stuff that's in the middle, the stuff that has some value, but the costs associated with it are really not commensurate with the benefits. Now the second issue is, and I think this is the really more fundamental one, 
We live in a society in the United States where more is better. More cable channels? Ah, much better than fewer cable channels. More bandwidth on the internet? Clearly better. More followers on Facebook? Clearly better. Why would we think then when you go to the doctor that your attitude would be different? There is a cultural expectation that if you do more, that's better than if you do less. And that's really the issue we need to begin to talk about. To get to a point where if you go to the doctor and the doctor says, you know, you have a virus, you feel rotten, but you know you don't need a chest x-ray and you don't need antibiotics and the patient leaves the doctor's office feeling good about it. Great, I don't need stuff. In fact, this will go away and I will get better and the reassurance is sufficient. We need to move from a world where more just always feels like better to a world where that isn't the case and what we need is the high value stuff and begin to push aside all of the other. So what consequences will we see if we don't properly address healthcare spending and in particular don't address these low value services? As we think about the healthcare spending situation that we're in now, it's kind of like Groundhog Day the movie where Bill Murray woke up each morning and relived the same day until he kind of made changes in his life and was able to move forward. We've had the same finger-pointing spending discussions for decades. When we had 6% of GDP going to health, and 10%, then 15%, and now 18%, we kept saying we must do something. During the same 30 or 40 years, we've also known there's an awful lot of waste and low-value care in the system. And we've also put those types of questions off over and over and over. So we're living in our own groundhog world. Now, Einstein said that if you keep doing the same thing over and over again and are hoping for a different outcome, that's the definition of insanity. So I believe where we are today is that we can't keep kicking the can down the road. We are running out of what I might call headroom. We are running out of extra dollars to spend. And if we don't solve this, what the trade-offs will be is that we don't have the type of extraordinary innovation that we've noticed even in the last year. Whether it's gene treatments for blindness or it's CAR-T therapy to cure previously fatal leukemia or it's contact lenses that measure your blood sugar or artificial skin for burns or artificial tracheas for other conditions. If we don't get a handle on these kinds of tough choices, we'll end up in a scenario where we can't have this type of innovation and the care that patients really do need, they won't be able to receive.